The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to those expressing them and do not necessarily reflect the OSA Foundation Incorporated or any other group or individual. This podcast may contain dialogue or subject material that could be considered for mature audiences only. All aspects of how you play the game and the OSIP Foundation Incorporated are protected by copyright and other state and federal intellectual property laws. Unauthorized use without the express written consent of the OSIP Foundation Incorporated is strictly prohibited. If you're interested in sponsoring how you play the game, please email us at podcast at osipfoundation.org. Your sponsorship may be tax deductible. Well, it's that time again. No, it's not time for your New Year's resolutions, but it's coming up, so get ready. It's time for How You Play the Game, the official podcast of the OSIP Foundation Incorporated. Yours truly, Jack Furlong, with you as we talk to you about what's going on as far as the world of sportsmanship is concerned. This is the second episode of the month of December. The year is 2022. So glad you can be with us. As always, check us out online at osipfoundation.org. You can email the show using the address podcast at osipfoundation.org. On social media, we're at facebook.com slash osipfoundation. Twitter and Instagram at osipfoundation. Hashtag how you play the game. Select episodes available on YouTube. Our apparel store is on Bonfire. And our book on sportsmanship, a critical reader and handbook, is available now on Amazon. We have a fantastic episode for you today to kind of wrap up the uh, the year here. A special guest from all the way across the pond known as the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, he is the subject lead in sport pedagogy and senior lecturer in sports coaching science at St. Mary's University in the great city of London, working on his PhD now and author of the book Blowing the Whistle, The Psychology of Football Refereeing. My guest today is Stuart Carrington. Stuart, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. How are you today? Uh, thank you for having me, Jack. And thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm very well. Thank you. And hope everyone and everyone listening as well as uh, also and is enjoying the uh, holiday season. Amen. Now, let's start with the one question that's on everybody's mind. Is Sean Connery the best James Bond? And why is your answer? Yes. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that as the first question. See, I, it's a curveball sure, right uh, from the beginning. Many, so, Yeah, I'm not, I don't know how many games uh, Sean Connery officiated in his life. Um, <laughs> I, I love Sean Connery. My favorite is Daniel Craig, but really, okay. okay. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a Daniel Craig fan as well, but I, you know, I actually did my master's thesis in James Bond, and I'm to a point now where I'm like, oh god, Daniel Craig just destroys me with what he did to this to the franchise after twenty some films and whatnot. And right, okay. but that's not why we're here to talk about Daniel Craig, unfortunately, <laughs> as as beautiful as he is, and. As much as my girlfriend loved him in Macbeth, um, let's 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 talk about what we really want to talk about, which is uh, sportsmanship and sports psychology and whatnot. Um, I, I found you on social media as you're doing a study right now um, with your uh, your main project being your PhD. Um, talk a little bit about uh, what your study is and what drove you to it uh, to 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 cover such an interesting and important topic. Well, I'll try to be as succinct as possible because obviously, it, you know, when you undertake such a large project like a PhD, you know, it's something I'm incredibly passionate about and incredibly interested in, or I wouldn't be doing it. So, in short, I, you know, became fascinated with officials for the same reason I think most people kind of become fascinated with officials, and that's because we love the games that mm -hmm. we like to watch. So, you know, in my case, it's football or, or soccer, as you'd call it. But you know, I'm kind of interested in all games, and and really, the kind of influences and the pressures that sports officials are under. Are kind of reflected across the globe 
And I, I asked myself the same questions, I guess, that everybody else asked, which is things like, you know, how much does the home crowd like impact a referee's decision? What happens if there's a particular kind of big name player or team uh, that kind of wants a decision go their way? Do, is, are they more likely to kind of get that decision less likely? Do these things not matter? Because the people in charge of these games are really experienced, they're professionals, and they're kind of performers in their own right. They have a very unique skill set and there's studies to support that. The study at the moment, I kind of like dovetail my love and interest of sports officials generally with a particular area of psychology that interests me, which is labelled Rational Emotive Behaviour Therapy, uh, or REBT, I think as we'll call it for short. Mm -hmm. And what REBT kind of looks at is how we can be kind of put in certain situations that we might call like adverse. So for instance, like the presence of criticism or like negative social evaluation, which we've all experienced and we all have a fear of to mm -hmm. some extent. And yet some people kind of, it doesn't really bother them. Um, and we notice that particularly successful people will say, you know, it doesn't really kind of impact them or their actions. Whereas with other people, it does. And when I looked through the literature around this particular approach, we know that there are certain emotional consequences, but there are also certain behavioural consequences when we fear that we're going to be negatively evaluated somewhat. And those behavioural consequences particularly would be very detrimental to sports officials to experience. And so the study that I'm looking at at the moment uh, it seeks to develop a measure where we can assess people's irrational beliefs, but in a very specific population, in this case, sports officials. And with this light of how might we improve or develop the behavioral consequences that sports officials have after experiencing these emotions in practice in order to improve their performances that's just kind of like one area of mm -hmm. sports officials that i'm looking at at the moment but i, I have many studies going on and have right. done studies previously uh fingers and many pies i guess that you i, I i'm so interested in that because as I, you know, as someone who who does officiate, been doing it for for fifteen years now. You you covered the gamut of things that I have experienced over my career. Um, let me let me start with this one. Is there a particular hypothesis that that you're you're almost? I don't want to say because of the scientific method that you're that you expect to see, but. Um, is there is there something where you're just like I I I I'm pretty sure there's going to be a correlation, or is there is there something like that that is driving the the, the specific nature of it beyond just your general interest, you know, with the with the understanding that you could be completely proven wrong, but 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 what you know it, what are you seeing so far in terms of that hypothesis and kind of where some of the numbers are pointing? Yeah, great question. It. it... I mean, first of all, you mentioned there like the scientific method. It's, of course, we you know we take everything as objectively as possible, and what what we seek is truth. That said, you know we'd be lying if we said you know when we go into a study, you know, is there anything we kind of want to see or expect mm -hmm. to see? Now, in terms of like wanting to see, I don't want to see anything, but what I would expect to see is that everybody will report some level of what we'd label as irrational beliefs. Mm -hmm. And that's not because they're sports officials. It's because they're human beings. So yourself, Jack, there's going to be certain kind of adverse events that will impact you to a greater extent than they might impact me. And then vice versa, there's going to be right. some things that might trigger me that would have no kind of water off ducks back for you, right? So I would expect everybody at some level to kind of like report these things. 
with regards to sports officials, what the evidence might point us to is that the more experienced the sports official is, the less likely they are to report irrational beliefs. And there's kind of two sort of rationales or kind of like supporting sort of pieces of evidence for that. So the first comes from an REBT background, which suggests that the older we get as, as humans, the less irrational beliefs we report. Mm. Um, now, is that kind of practice? You know, we, we go through things and we realise, actually, it wasn't as bad as I thought, so I can stand it. You know, one of the things that reveal an irrational belief is that term, I can't stand it when. So I can't stand like a bad call. And it's like, OK, well, you know, you don't like a bad call as a player, but you can stand it. Like, you'll, right. you'll play another game next week, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so there's that kind of aspect to it. Now, the aspect with officials is that there's this whole like kind of corpus of evidence that would suggest that the more experienced a match official is, the more resilient they are to social influences. So the more resilient they are to kind of large crowds, for instance. I mean, I know you're a baseball umpire, Jack. I mean, I've... I've, I've never umpired a game of baseball in my life and I'm not particularly you know, familiar with You're not missing much sometimes, believe me. <laughs> I mean, I do love it. Um, yeah, I, I actually, uh, baseball is easily my favorite American sport, by the way. Oh, good. Uh, so I love to watch so it. So we can um, keep you on the party list then. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, please do so. Please do so. Um, I'm constantly texting like an uh, American friend saying like, why did this happen? Like, I don't quite right. get this. And they explain the nuances of the game, right? But that what we would expect is that you know if if you get a if you've got a, a relatively inexperienced umpire and you go and put them in like Yankee Stadium, right? They are more prone to make mistakes or to be influenced by the crowd or mm-hmm. other kind of uh, what we call like constraints or environmental constraints, such as like the importance of that particular event. So maybe there's one out left at the bottom of the ninth, something like that. They they might make be more prone to make that decision wrong than a very experienced official. Right. So part of the data that we collect is you know how long have you been officiating and how much kind of investment are you putting into this in terms of hours, maybe financial investment as well because we would expect to see less irrational beliefs in those individuals. We also kind of see that elite officials will cite abuse as uh, as something that hasn't really affected them or wouldn't affect them to like to drop out. It wouldn't impact their kind of participation. And there's two ways of looking at that. So the first way is, well, that's because you go through that abuse and it kind of sorts the wheat from the chaff. Right. Um, the more, you know, it's you're either thick skinned and tolerant and you can get to the top or you're not right that's kind of like one hypothesis the other hypothesis yeah the other hypothesis is well it it could be that it's a bit like survivor bias so it could be that they think that's the case but actually what they're not acknowledging is all the support that they had in place so maybe they had really good social support that helped get them through those tough times Mm -hmm. um maybe they had really good mentoring so when they did make a mistake it was framed in a positive learning experience as opposed to a negative experience so and that's just kind of like off the top of my head a couple of like constraints that might have impacted that so it's, it's a little bit like a millionaire saying oh i'm a millionaire because i work really hard right it's like, well yeah like a lot of people work mm-hmm. really hard they're not millionaires there might have been other things at play might have been a bit of luck might have been really good support could have been a myriad of other mm-hmm. reasons it's funny that you say that you know we see and I'm, i think this is a global problem um and and does not pertain to any particular sport the the shortage of officials that we have in sports globally across all sports comes from the the number of officials who quit after say one maybe two years of doing it and it it, it appears that you know the abuse the poor sportsmanship etc that that they they take is one of the major reasons that that happens now on one hand you like you say it, you know the people who are really good at it they're going to rise to the top and that's kind of just a natural 
uh, evolution or natural selection process that that we do expect. Um, but at the same time, we we need the games to get played and we need bodies. You know, that's something that we see all the time. It's like we we're almost to a point where we're like we we don't care. We just need a body out there. Um, is there is there something that can be done about about this? I mean, is it as simple as just saying to people? You got to be nicer to these people, you know, like or or is there does it go deeper than that? I mean, you obviously said there's luck involved, there's support systems, et cetera. But is there an easy solution? I think there are solutions. I don't think they're particularly easy. Mm -hmm. I think there's kind of two approaches that sort of someone can take in order to kind of solve this problem that you cite and, and you're right is first of all like the the, the abuse that officials receive or, or the, and the scrutiny because it may not always be abuse but i think scrutiny might be uh, a word that every exper- uh, official experiences mm-hmm. is, is certainly increasing um there seems to be so much more at stake now we know at the highest level you know that could be like financial pressures you know teams or individuals can stand to lose a significant amount of money based on decisions that have gone result in success or failure mm-hmm. at lower levels you know where that isn't the case you know i'm not quite sure why that is um i guess people just invest so much time energy and emotion into these activities and pursuits that that causes them to kind of you know blame whoever's there to be blamed and right. incidentally I, I talk about this in my book uh, a theory called attribution theory mm-hmm. which states that when we kind of receive a bad call or we lose we tend to blame something that's external so something that's nothing to do with us and likely to change so the official is like the go-to person for that it's probably not going to get this person again next week um and it's nothing to do with me so i can blame that person for my success or failure uh, sorry failure we would blame we would attribute success then that's always internal right right yeah, so no, no one ever says, oh, we won today because the official gave us a really right. good decision. Yeah, right. Um, so it's always kind of the external one, like the weather or like the playing surface is right. the other one that's all famously cited. So I think there was, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book and got interested is because there's all these kind of classical psychological theories and approaches mm-hmm. or explanations for things that had never been applied to sports officials before. Going back to your original question, um, around you know these solutions there's there's two ways so the first way would be we try to change society now that's probably going to have the most impact and be most effective but obviously that's the hardest thing to do right it's going to take a lot yeah yeah like it's you know people have to realize and again it uh, apologies for the awful plug because i'm going to do it twice that's quite all right yeah in the second part of my book i talk about um like the sort of traditional impact of officials and i focus on like european soccer Mm -hmm. but you know and as i mentioned i'm a big baseball fan i'd be interested in knowing um you know the history of of abuse in in baseball umpires or other american sports but certainly in europe with soccer it's 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 tradition you know this goes back 100 years 150 years people lost money like wagering on on the outcomes of of soccer matches and they they blame the official right so it's it's part of it um like one official that i interviewed said he took his little girl to a game this is this guy is like a a, you know a a top flight referee Mm -hmm. um in europe and he said he took his little girl, who's like maybe like five or six, to a, to a football match just to watch as a spectator. And, and everyone kind of like started jeering and booing the referee for whatever reason. And his daughter said, like, why why are we doing that? Like, why is everyone kind of moaning the ref? And bear in mind, he's a referee. He said, because that's what you do at the football. So he's like, wow. he's now kind of perpetuating this. And he's mm-hmm. like, why did I say that? Like, yeah. I should be saying, yeah, because they're being a bit silly. They're just blaming him. But it's like, oh, this is like normal. Right. So it's really hard to change that. Of course, there are things that people can do to 
kind of change this. You know, we can emphasize the impact that it has on these individuals. We can also impact the outcome that it has on performance. And the thing that really fascinates me is we hear a lot about spectators saying we want good performances. You know, we want consistency. Well, actually, there's a whole like body of evidence, particularly contemporary evidence right now, that states that each kind of individual has a threshold that mm-hmm. they can take. So officials tend to kind of apply the laws of the game, whichever game that is, really well until that patient's sort of threshold has been breached. Yeah. And then they start to say, OK, I've got to do things to manage this. So I kind of might bend the laws slightly to kind of appease people or to kind of deflect blame from me because the heat is getting a bit hot in here. Yeah. You know, the atmosphere is rising, whatever it may be. Or people go then the other way and they start applying laws really rigidly, which detracts from the entertainment or the spectacle of the game. And people don't want to see that either. So in fact, like the abuse, it doesn't have the effect it wants, which is, you know, kind of get better. It's, it's the opposite. Right. And I actually think people aren't familiar with that. The other way is my way, which is, It'd be nice to do that, but it's kind of difficult. So why don't we change how we react to that? Like, how do we react to that abuse? Um, And how can we say that it'd be really nice if, as officials, we were liked by everyone? It's probably not going to happen. Right. Let's question why that's important. Mm -hmm. Is it important that, like, Joe Bloggs in the stand, like, thinks I had a good game or not, um, or criticizes me on social media? Really difficult, but that's one approach of this therapeutic uh, perspective that I like to adopt. That's that's so interesting because I you know, I almost feel like like you said that that's going to be the easier way to go and yet from a certain point of view that's almost a taller ask than changing society you know depending upon how you look at it um I I, I it's so funny that you say that because you are you are framing so many of my experiences, I, I can cite chapter and verse the number of times where if I'm I'm umpiring a baseball game, and as you said, the abuse gets to a certain level, and my 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 window of tolerance has gotten very very small, and and we've reached we've gone past that threshold where now I start questioning myself every single pitch, every single call. Did I get that right? And I've actually had to say to coaches, players, fans, etc. The more you, for lack of a better term, abuse me, the more bad calls I'm going to make because I'm so worried about this. And as you said, also, there is that 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 human nature to we never look internally. We always we tend to look externally at it's never my fault. It's always someone else's fault. Um and the and and that kind of perpetuates itself because then they might respond with, "Well, then you shouldn't be doing this game because you can't you can't stand it." I mean, it, it, could could it be that also part of the solution is to train? I don't, I don't, maybe train isn't the best word, but to try and, and, and reinforce the idea that, hey, if you if you keep doing this to officials, you're going to lose call. Like there's, there's, there's an, there's an intrinsic value here of, do you want the calls to go right? Well then, you know, leave them alone. I mean, because, because that to me seems, that to me seems like another, you know, to go along with what you suggested as well, because it just seems like all, they always want their pound of flesh for, for a call. You know what I mean? Oh God, completely. Yeah. It's, I mean, so many things to kind of take apart there. Like the, the two things I sort of like really emphasize here is first of all, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like this, the constant sort of like barrage of criticism that an official may receive uh, on the outcome of like one decision, um, 
it, it doesn't help performance. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where I, I sort of like ask people like what they actually want out of the officials and also from the game. So we know that a couple of things. We know that if you if you're constantly abusing or criticizing officials, uh, particularly in a non-constructive way, it's going to have two things. One, it's going to affect motivation, and therefore you may not have them, and therefore you don't get a game because you need right. the officials to play the game. Right. And we're seeing that across the board in lots of sports. Um, you know, colleagues of mine that are doing some great research in this area have identified, you know, the referees in like rugby union, cricket, baseball, basketball, soccer, you name it, are decreasing because who wants to do it? You know, right. who wants to do that for like, you know, 30 quid, you know, for an hour and a half? Uh, you know, you've got to drive an hour there, drive an hour back, you're mm. there alone. Yep. You're going to get a little bit of stick and, and it becomes less enjoyable. Right. And then the other side is, yeah, it's like I'm kind of more likely to make a mistake. And what's really fascinating is, you know, we see in you know, my backgrounds in coaching as in coaching players. Right. And one thing we would always say is like try to produce a safer environment as possible. So we would, you know, gone are the days where managers would, you know, we call it the throwing the teacup, you know, get in the changing room and like throw a hot drink at them right. because they're not performing. Those days are gone. Like that's not how you get good responses from people. Yeah. Uh, no matter how many traditionalists say that's true, it just doesn't work. And we also know that like players tend to play better at home, you know, because they get support. They're right. not going to get booed. They're not going to get abused and stuff like that. So why are we doing that to the officials? Now, that's not to say that you know, we would expect you know, people to never kind of you know critique an official's decision. But we can always sort of have an opinion on that. Where I'm where I'm going with that is this is where people need to kind of take a bit more of a philosophical view mm-hmm. about the laws of the games we play. So certainly in, in soccer, the number of laws that are subjective is very, very high. So a, a soccer official is going to make around 260 to 300 decisions a game. In a temporal kind of aspect of looking at that would be about one every 10 seconds. Okay. Now, out of that sort of many decisions, okay, only about 40 are going to be objective, i.e. the ball crossed the line or it didn't cross the line. And it's like yes or no. Yeah. Now, really incidentally, there was in the World Cup, uh, Japan when Japan um, played Spain mm-hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, there everyone was like the ball went out of play for Japan's winning goal. Right. And FIFA showed all these angles that showed not all the ball did. So a fraction of the ball, and I'm talking like, you know, like a centimeter of the ball was still in play. That's an objective decision. That ball was still in play. It's a fact. And people don't agree with it. People are like, no, but that's out of play. Like, you know, from the naked eye, most fast places out of play. So even with objective calls, they don't agree or they can't, like, you know, they don't appreciate it. So how are we going to do with subjective where the laws state things like, oh, it's a careless tackle isn't a yellow card but a reckless tackle is so your definition of those terms might be very different from mine and here's the rub like the wonderful philosopher called seth bordner says we can make these games really objective but Mm -hmm. we don't want them to be we want that kind of element of chance this element of danger third shameless plug in the intro to my book i talk about um a philosophical bernard suits who says yeah an element of chance is something that we actually need in sports otherwise there'd be no point in playing because the best team would win every time we kind of want that, you know, like, how does that ball run or bounce or whatever? And so when I think fans, what, what might help fans kind of appreciate calls is that it's very subjective. You get to see it once as an umpire or an official or a referee or whatever. Uh, your view might be slightly tainted. There's all these other constraints. And plus, you have to interpret the law and, and their interpretation might be slightly different at that particular moment in time. And not only that, we want that. It gives us excitement. It's mm-hmm. part of the attraction of the game. We don't want it to be clinical. So I think like maybe there's an element of education 
in in that aspect that might help this situation that we talked about regarding abuse and participation sorry that was a really long way that's quite all right that's why we're here you know um the it's it's funny that you say that about about the number of calls that a referee will have to make during a particular match and as well as the the difference between the objective and the subjective calls um you know in it, it, we're looking at this in baseball over here there's this constant talk about um you know robot umpires basically because in 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 terms of baseball you know the strike zone although defined in the rule book does have that subjective nature to it and statistically you know as they talk about the you know the 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 computers or the robots calling balls and strikes instead of of people the the numbers are still showing that the human beings get it right more often than the computers do you know the computers wow. are coming in at like 90 91% and the humans are coming in at i think like 96% so there's still that element of we're still doing it okay you know but there is that subjective nature to it the way i'm going to call something is going to be slightly different than the way my next colleague is going to is going to call it um and there's and there's a re- like you said with the with the 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 you know the centimeter of the ball being in play there is the technology now to help us understand and get the call right which i which is i think what most people would cite they want you know between consistency and getting calls right is probably the two or probably the two big things that that they'll that they'll want um you know but but at the same you know at the same time although that is a tool that we can use uh there is still uh, a level of subjective nature to that i mean i can there are plenty of times in baseball and again this is a long-winded answer over here with replay um you know the the when when it, when a play goes to replay here, there are camera angles that the that the, that the people reviewing the play have that the players and the media and the fans do not have, and and so and you know so you'll have the television feed of both the home team, the away team, and then the additional feeds uh, that that they have that we don't, and they'll show the ones that they do have at the stadium while they're trying to make the call, and then if the call comes back. You know, in you know something that doesn't align with what they see, all hell breaks loose because they're saying, "Oh, just it's as clear as day and whatnot." But in reality, we're not giving the the objective or you know the, all of the evidence to the people who are watching, and that kind of leads me to this question: Why do you think that humans reject the 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 objective facts? I mean, I mean, we can talk we can talk about that in so many different places like like politics or whatever it doesn't even matter it's you know if a fact is objectively true why is it that we as humans choose to say i i i still don't buy it okay great great question there's two answers and it could be a little bit of both so the first is what we call confirmation bias Mm -hmm. so human beings tend to back their own opinion so if we look at psychology from evolutionary background we might say that this was this would have really benefited us. So, in in a survival kind of instinct way, uh, if we have a lot of doubt and we don't know what to do, one, we're going to procrastinate over that decision and hesitate. And in certain situations, uh, particularly like survival, war type situations, that could be potentially fatal. So, it mm-hmm. wouldn't be a particularly good quality. Right. And second of all, when we do something, we we want to kind of you know be committed to that action, and we want to believe that what we're doing is is right. 
one again because the pragmat uh, pragmatist sort of elements of that so it might actually benefit our action or the outcome that we want and second of all there's that kind of element of ego like we want to protect our own ego that right. okay we want to be right it's really hard to critique ourselves so there's that element so if we believe something is right or wrong we tend to accept information that supports our view and like quite kind of readily but we're also equally ready to reject any information that might oppose our view we see this in sports fans all the time mm -hmm. uh i mean the, the team that i follow over here tottenham um there was an incident a few weeks ago um where tottenham were playing a game in europe and they ideally obviously they want to win the game and it was, it was kind of important they win and it was 1-1 and in the last last kick of the game it was like you know late in the injury time mm -hmm. uh so you know, star striker scores a goal and then everyone's celebrating and then they decide to look at the video replay to see if this guy's offside or not and he was offside like it's just objective fact he's offside but right. like this much uh for the, i know everyone's listening on audio so i i, I showed like yeah but but we know it's yeah <laughs> yeah um, and and and, it, and and still like fans are like well you know he oh yeah it's only an inch and you know it's because they want him to score they right and they don't agree with that law and then they start kind of having all these sort of philosophical arguments about why that law is now to the detriment of the game etc whereas the fact of the matter is he is offside and it's an right. objective decision right so that's a good example of confirmation bias the other thing that i would say there is about procedure so in we can call this a kind of phenomenon procedural justice and it's fascinating because i'm writing an article it's actually been in the pipeline for a long time uh with a with a canadian researcher called ian cunningham and we've decided to collaborate on something because we're both really interested in the importance of communication mm -hmm. with officials so you mentioned there about importance being consistency and accuracy well in some kind of situations there might be kind of two outcomes that would still be accurate or kind of acceptable so we kind of fluctuate from accurate to adequate decisions okay okay and uh, the example that i that sort of spawned this piece of work that we're still developing comes from baseball um you have to forgive me i can't remember the names of the coaches or even the teams okay but um interestingly i i call it the arse in the jackpot scene because um, oh yes the, yep the the, could, the that's the, on, that the, the the new york mets and the los angeles dodgers that's it. I remember writing those names in the paper. Yep, I had it was, to look it it was and... And, it, and I believe it was Tom Hallian, the great Tom Hallian, was the was the umpire who said uh, ass in the jackpot and yada yada yada. And you know, Terry Collins was the manager. Noah Syndergaard was the pitcher. I think Chase Utley was the was the hitter. You know that that kind of scenario. Wonderful. So it, it, all these names now are flooding back to me. Good thing I, I showed to up today. Up. You know, yeah. I, I, mate. I'm so I'm so pleased. And, and obviously, I had to pester all my American friends to say, <laughs> just confirm for me here. Like this guy's the umpire, right? Yep. Or this guy's the pitcher. And so is this kind of like what are the unwritten rules? So we call this like the ethos of the game. So my understanding is that in the previous game, someone kind of got roughed up with a few pitches, yes. and it's the unwritten rule that if you do that, we kind of get your pitcher back, right? And then everyone kind of moves on with it okay right. so in sports there's all these unwritten rules a good one in soccer would be if someone's down injured uh and the team and team a kicks the ball out deliberately it in law it's team b's ball they get they get to throw it back in but what they would do is they would throw it back to team a to kind of say like thanks for kicking it out got it just play on from where you were now and obviously in this instance you know the pitchers throw the ball like a wild or aggressively i'm not quite sure what the right term would be and then they've rejected that picture so tom yes. hallian is okay and then he says it's our ass in the jackpot here and to the to the 
to the uh to the coach who's saying you've got to give us a shot i yep. you've got to let us have one go and you've got to give us a warning yeah now what we don't know and this is what i what the crux of the paper is about procedural justice we don't know what procedures were in place if we knew as spectators that that particular umpire had gone to the dressing room or gone to the coaches before and said look there's a lot of scrutiny there's a lot of attention on what your pitch is going to do to this first uh, batter we have been instructed that if you do this, he is going to be ejected from the game. So I'm making the procedure very clear. Right. This is what's going to happen. If he does this, this is the likely outcome. If that happened, I reckon every spectator would say, well, what are you doing? Are you warned there was a clear procedure there? Right. And we're more readily to accept that information. So that's how we can combat that confirmation bias. It seems to me, and it could be wrong, that that wasn't part of the procedure. Well, everyone kind of was shocked because they assumed that the procedure would follow a different route. Right. And so one thing that I'm kind of really interested in is how officials communicate decisions. So in soccer, well, we hit, we see VAR, but we don't hear VAR. We're not privy to the conversations that occur. And I'd really like that to happen. One, because I think fans would be more ready. I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm not delusional. I, there would still be criticism. Right. But I think fans would be more ready to accept those decisions. And two, it might actually educate them on on like why certain decisions happen, because sometimes fans aren't particularly au fait with the laws of the game. Um, in that baseball instance, I, th- I think that's a really good example of procedural justice may have resulted in a better outcome in, yeah. for, for everybody. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I, I want to ask you about that now. Uh, you know, you, you may know this already. And if, if you do, great. And if not, I'm breaking news for you. Okay. Uh, has has your research in into that incident uh, included what what they call here the heads up report? No, please okay. tell me about it. I'm going to make notes. Okay, so, and I only know this because again, we know I know some baseball umpires. I know the the the, the procedure. So, what Major League Baseball does, and it would be good to research this, is that prior to each series of games, so you know, three game series and whatnot, the umpires will receive a report they call the heads up report. And this is Major League Baseball telling this crew of umpires, hey, the last time these two teams met, this is what happened, essentially, you know, so that there is there is a formal documentation, a paper trail, if you will, to say we are aware that this happened. We don't know what's going to happen. It may be water under the bridge, but we want to make sure that you are aware that this happened. And that normally will not result in, like you said, the umpires going to the locker rooms and saying, if you do this, this is going to happen. And it usually doesn't result in, you know, warnings happening before the game in any way, shape or form, because they don't want to stir the pot, so to speak. But the umpires at least are aware of that. And they're conscious of that to the point where in in this scenario, you know, Tom Hallion and his crew knew going in, okay, there is a history here this could happen and they were ready for it and that's what and that's what essentially happened um it's 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 fascinating to me because on the on on the lower levels for example you know i'm doing high school baseball and we know that there are major rivalries between some of these teams but they quite you know there's a debate going on now about if something happens between two teams of you know teenagers should we tell the the next officials that this happened or do the officials going into that game prefer to have a clean slate because then they're not going to make judgment you know because especially because these are 
lesser experienced officials, so to speak. These are not Major League Baseball officials who have been trained properly. These are guys who have other jobs and other lives and do this to pick up a few bucks, you know, and, and you know, some of them don't want to know that so that they don't have a preconceived notion, and others do. Um, it's a really, really interesting and fascinating concept to me because, again, that's something the public does not know, you know? It, it, it's a commonly asked question that I get, I think is related to this, is kind of how much preparation is good preparation yeah. and can it ever have a negative effect? I, I'm going to sound uh, like I'm sitting on the fence here. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> but there, there, there's there's kind of like a good side and a, and a downside to this. Right. So one one study that I cite in the book looks at like the red card bias in right. football. So the, uh, these group of researchers they they took one one sample of referees and got them to watch a game, and then the second sample of referees watched exactly the same game, kind of in a different room. Now the first group weren't told anything; they were just just watch the game and just tell us like what your decisions would be every time like something happens. So do you give a foul? Do you give a free kick? Do you give a corner, mm-hmm. yellow card, whatever? Same with the other team. But they said, just watch out for the red team. They're very aggressive. They topped the league in red cards. They had more fines for disciplinary action. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Really kind of primed the officials. Right. And lo and behold, the, the, the control group, they gave an equal amount of fouls to each team and the, the, an equal amount of cards. So there was no kind of difference or discrepancy. Okay. Now, the other team, not only did they give the red team more red cards and more yellow cards and more free kicks against them, but they actually didn't punish the other team Wow! Uh, as much. So it was like they started to be favorable. So we call this idiosyncrasy credit. Mm-hmm. So I, like, we like these guys, right. so I'm going to overlook their misdemeanors. So it has this kind of like double compound effect. Right. And then I don't like these guys, so I'm going to punish them like kind of more severely. So it goes like that. Yeah. Now... So that would be kind of a downside to it. Now, Mm -hmm. the other side to this is the importance of preparation. Um, Earlier on this year, just a couple of months ago, in the International Journal of Sports Psychology, myself and some colleagues published a paper. It was was the first paper, I was really proud of it, because it was the first paper that interviewed, so we took a qualitative approach to officiating, and we interviewed three uh, international standard uh, match officials um, from soccer. Mm -hmm. And these guys were really experienced, um, they refereed in like World Cups, um, Champions League, top flight European leagues, et cetera, et cetera. And they all said the same thing around preparation. And that's it's so key to their performance. And there were one guy like gave us this really wonderful kind of breakdown of his preparation. Mm. And he was saying, like, a week before the game, I'm doing this, five days before the game, I'm doing that, and so on and so forth. And one thing he does is like a week before he gets the appointment, he'll say to his assistants, So we've got like team A, team B here, you look at team A, you look at team B, you look at their last like three games, tell us where the corner kicks go, tell us where the goal kicks go, where should I be standing? So there's this process or procedural element to it, rather than who's the aggressive player, like who's got loads of red cards, things like this. So preparation is really important when we focus on the process, i.e. what do I need to do to make the right calls? Um, And for instance if we know that there's a little bit of history between two teams like one thing that we might be able to do is to give like prior warning but be suitably vague about this so right. kind of don't give yourself enough rope to hang yourself with here and say if you do this i'm ejecting you because now you've backed yourself into a corner and you kind of yeah. got to do it right yeah so you might say something like we know there's a history here if anything happens we will sanction it accordingly 
So we've kind of given that warning of, okay, we're aware of this, right? but you haven't backed yourself into a corner and you're still yeah. looking at the procedural element of it. Um, so I think that's really important that, that we look at the processes behind what we do and, and to be clear in our, in our process as well. And, and take every all that preparation with that little kind of like pinch of salt of it could have a detrimental impact on our performance and the other thing i'd say that was really fascinating and, and this is what kind of like sparked off some of the research interest around the psychology of, of, of officiating particularly our as an individual our mm -hmm. own thoughts is that one guy said the uh, the person arrives before the referee and i just love that this interesting. is interesting like yeah, how we function, uh, Jack, as, as you know, in our in our roles, in you know, whether it's a role as you know, a, a father, a son, a brother, or an umpire or mm -hmm. colleague, whatever it is, that's just a reflection of how we're functioning as a human being. Like at that time, if we're tired, if we're stressed, if we're sad, if we're angry, like that that shows in our actions. We that we can't disassociate our cognitions to our behaviors. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, and so that's why I'm just really interested in like how do we prepare psychologically? And and bearing in mind the sample that I just told you about in that in, in that recent research, when I said, you know, what kind of psychological prep do you get? One guy laughed and said, Nothing. We left yeah. to ourselves. Like we'll get fitness like training and we get right. told like what to eat and, and how to train, but nothing psychologically. And when right. I think about the importance of our cognitions and our emotions, I just, you know, for me, that's like the go to area for developing this population. Right. No, that's, that's I I love that quote. That's a that's a, a really great way to look at not just that, but so many different things in life. Like you said, the, the roles that we play. Um, I, I, I quickly want to cycle or circle to this in that in 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 these instances where there are those unwritten rules, you know, um, you know, you know, like like the the in in soccer football, the throwing the ball back into the the you know the team A as you put it, or the yeah. you know you what we call in baseball plunking. You hit our player, we are going to hit yours, etc. Um, why you know, and you have a very good knowledge of this because you come from also coaching as well. Is why do we feel that that is so necessary? I mean, it seems to me it, it it's the old an eye for an eye. Uh, sometimes with with the plunking, um, it it, it kind of goes against what what we are taught about morals and values and whatnot. And yet, in sport, we we tend to uh, champion that. And and I like the way I always would 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 promote it whenever I would coach or anything is a better revenge is to get the victory. Yeah. You know, it's a lot easier, you know, you know, rather than hit somebody because they hit your guy, go get that W, go show that the, on the scoreboard that you have, you know, you, you're the better team and whatnot. And yet that's still not sometimes clicking in the heads of, of some of these players. What is it that you think drives that in terms of, of some of these participants? And, and that really kind of makes our jobs as officials that much more difficult sometimes. Yes, this is. I say to my students often when we talk about like psychology, mm -hmm. it's not like eating a bowl of spaghetti. Okay. I can get one strand of spaghetti with my fork. Like that's possible. I can yep. do it. But one, it's hard. And two, it's kind of more enjoyable if I get a bunch of strands put together. Right. Fair enough. It's a little bit like this. So um, it's a bit of a weird one. But the, the reason I bring it up is because I think when we talk about psychology is we don't live in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yourself as, as an American, you are going to be influenced by certain aspects of American culture and society, but also history. And we can't really escape that. Yeah. Um, now, there's a couple of reasons for that. So 
when we talk about psychology, which might be one strand of that spaghetti, we also have to think about sociology. We also have to think about history. We also have to think about all these other kind of uh, disciplines of study. So humans, you know, from maybe a sociological aspect, like we tend to like stability. So one thing that, uh, you know, I, I went to, I've seen one baseball game live. So I was really fortunate to, to, uh, travel across the United States. And uh, when I was in New York, I got a Yankee game. It's Yankees v Blue Jays. Great. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really good. I yeah. said back to back home runs, uh, home win, and nice weather, which apparently is all you can wish for. Um, no, I'm wishing for <laughs> it right now. <laughs> it's not so, baseball season and it's raining here. So, <laughs> no, 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 same here. It's absolutely yeah. freezing. Yeah. And certainly no baseball. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I saw this game. And um, if you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, and please do. Okay. I, I, believe uh, after like the seventh inning everyone played the song let take me out to the ball game yep that's the seventh inning stretch yeah great wonderful now i didn't know that okay so i'd heard of it but i didn't really know much about it and i'm talking to a guy like sitting next to me i was like oh like what's this about and he told me about the seventh inning stretch and and this song and except the traditions and things like this now on the one side it's like well why does that happen mm-hmm. and the reason it happens is because it brings us comfort like it's something that we can cling on to and it's a stable thing. And in today's society, like lots of things change very, very quickly. It's something we can go back to. Like some people go to church every Sunday morning because right. that's their stable thing that they do. If you go to the baseball, you want your seven inning stretch. Now imagine if someone said, yeah, we're just going to get rid of that now because it's not really conducive to the atmosphere or we don't need it anymore. We're just right. going to get people be like, no, no, you can't do that. Now that's reflected in the sports we play. So sports are just a reflection of the society we are in. Right. Now that brings us onto the ethos of the game. So traditions kind of pursue certain like what, what we call the ethos. So certain things you do and certain things you don't do. So for example, like in, in soccer, if someone gets cramped, like even if it's like someone your opponents, like you, you hold their leg up for them and like help stretch them out, even yeah. though like for the last 90 minutes, you've probably been trying to kick them and like, you know, talk trash to them, whatever. Right. You just do that. It's like the ethos of the game. There are certain things you do, certain things you don't do. And you'll be really frowned if you don't do it. Um, there was a really famous incident where like a team didn't throw the ball back to a team that like kind of kicked it out for them. And then they went on the score and the opposing manager called his players off the team. Uh, off the pitch excuse me wow he was like we're not playing this guys like we'll forfeit the game like we don't play in this way um and and the governing body actually said yeah the game has to be replayed even though no laws were broken wow they were like the game has to be replayed because that tradition is so strong wow so that just shows how powerful that is um and i guess when we talk about the ethos of the game we have to think about like entertainment so an australian researcher called scotty russell he looks like what the role of the official is and he said it's, it goes beyond decision making. And there are kind of four pillars. And one of them is like uh, decision making. So you're there to make correct calls. You're also there to um, to ensure the safety of the players. You're also there to be fair. So like to be consistent and apply, mm-hmm. them cons- apply the laws consistently. But interesting, the fourth one was entertainment. And now this one really bugs people, right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, you're not there. Because they think what it means is you're part of the show. And, and, and fans hate that. What it really means is this, it's like you have to decide when that law is going to be applied accurately or adequately. Mm-hmm. For instance, in that case of, um, you call it plunking, I believe. Yes. Okay, so I imagine that if like one team throws a ball at a batter and then the other team do it and the the official kind of ejects that player, as they won't see that as fair, but also fans are probably thinking that's already entertaining. Like we don't want to see players ejected. Right. And this is something that we can tolerate. 
A good example in soccer is when the ball goes out of play, the laws state the ball needs to be thrown in at the exact location it went out of play. Like I can tell you now that's never happened. Right. Like I'm 40 years old. I've never seen that happen. Right. Like, players take three extra steps and like throw, throw it in mm-hmm. or just to get a quick throw in. Right. If the referee's blowing his whistle like every uh, three seconds, like to say, you know, you need to get back here or she right. says, you know, you need to go further forward or whatever. Like people are going to hate that. It's not mm-hmm. entertaining. So I think that's why these things happen. One, like tradition. And two, it's, it's entertainment. Like yeah. this is kind of what people sign up for. They want to see that. It's funny you say that because, you know, so entertainment is, in in my world, such an interesting topic because it seems like many of my professional endeavors are all about entertainment. You know, I, by day, I am a professional jazz musician and by night I am a, you know, a baseball umpire and, and a side gig I have is baking and, 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 you know, I wrote a book and I do this and, and I, I think about it sometimes and I say, if I didn't do these things, would life be able to go on? And the answer is technically yes, because what I'm providing is entertainment in a way. You know, you you don't need as as harsh as it sounds. You don't technically need sport or art to advance society. You know, what you need is food, and you need sustenance, and you need, you know that kind of stuff. And and as a result of that, it it forces you to put a different spin on it because of the entertainment value. And I think more and more people are slowly realizing that, that there is, especially in sport, there is that entertainment value. I mean, we I look at it this way. You know, we just had the breaking news here of Aaron Judge, the famous Yankee, uh, just re-signed with the Yankees for nine years and $361 million. And the, the, the response that I hear so frequently sometimes, regardless of the player, is, why do these athletes get paid so much money, but the people who really matter, the the teachers, the the police officers, the firefighters, you know, the, why are they not getting this kind of money? And the, the unfortunately, the answer is capitalism. You know, it's what the market dictates. And we as the society dictate that we want our entertainment that way. So so there's there is a reason to it, even though logically or I don't even know what the right word would be there. there there's a there's a. A different way of looking at it that would you know that could drive you crazy if you think about it too long you know and that that leads me to this in terms of like you say with entertainment as we talk about plunking or the seventh inning stretch could an argument be made in that something like the seventh inning stretch is never it doesn't seem to have that intrinsic bad quality you know it's just a pause no no one really gets hurt so to speak whether it be physically emotionally psychologically etc uh by the seventh inning stretch and yet with plunking you know if you're if you're if you're going to throw a spherical baseball at another human being at 100 miles an hour and hit them they're going to get bruised they're going to get hurt if you hit them in the wrong spot they could be you know injured etc so that kind of does have that intrinsic negative quality to it. Does that difference put a wedge somewhere in that entertainment argument? Yeah, because now we have to think about which of those pillars are most pertinent. So mm-hmm. like safety of players would be one. Right. So, okay, so the ethos of the... And this is what, you know, this might be... Some people might look at this to critique officials. And right. I look at it as a way of saying, look how hard this job is. Yes. 
So on the one side, like I've got to do, I have to kind of uphold this pillar of entertainment, and we and people were kind of want to accept that they want to see like good players, good pitchers, or whatever, like ejected from the game、mm-hmm. for doing something that traditionally is completely acceptable, and that we accept as spectators. On the other side. I've got to look after these guys, and if someone gets really hurt, like that's on me. Like maybe、yep. I should have like done something before. So really difficult, kind of like balancing act to do.、Um, and I think that's why this again we can we can look back at all these other kind of topics that we've touched upon, like procedural justice. So、right. is it a case of now we say, look, we know this has occurred before. Like this is why we're not allowing it anymore. Right. And I think if everyone was really transparent and clear about that, you would still have naysayers, but people might readily accept it. I I disagree with. The application of this, I really like plunking, but it's been very clear that it's just not going to be tolerated this season or this game or whatever.、Right. Okay,、um, yeah, I mean, I, I talked about all these different kind of strands or influences that we have to think about. This isn't a new thing.、Um, in, in ancient Rome, which is you mentioned, you particularly like jazz music,、yeah. uh, which I'll happily talk to you about that because I know nothing about jazz.、Yeah. But I was really fortunate to go to、uh, New Orleans and listen、oh, to God, some jazz、yeah. there. So、yeah. um, it kind of you know really got me in the mood to talk about that. Yeah,、um, yeah we.、Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in ancient Rome as well, and, and、okay. the, they they had this phrase. Called panem essicensis, which is Latin for bread and circuses. I.e., this is all you need to keep、mm-hmm. people happy. So you said, like, what do we need? Like, yeah, we need food, but we also do need entertainment.、Yeah. And, and officials have got this incredible, like, wonderful role, but also incredibly difficult role of. I, I have to help provide entertainment. This is where people come to be entertained, and、yeah. and if I ruin it for them, like people aren't happy. It's expensive, you know. Like, people might pay a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars upwards, you know, to to watch games. Like if I ruin that game, if I ruin that spectacle, or don't if I eject their favorite player, like that's kind of on me.、Right. And yet at the same time, I have all these other things that I need to contend with as well. So th- this is why that role is important. This is why I think that what I do is important because I think that people need to be educated、um, around these kind of topics. And also, I think, frankly, officials need support. You know,、yeah. they they just don't get any. If I If, if if I went onto my uni database、uh, like right now and I type in like sports science players, sports science coaches, something like that, I get around seven hundred and fifty thousand hits. So that's how many publications there have been around this topic. Now, if I type in like psychological training, psychological support, like match officials or referees or umpires, I get I get around seventy thousand. So it's like ten percent of the、yeah. research is on an agent that is kind of you know it's a third team essentially. So really underrepresented.、Mm-hmm. Um, around fifty percent of the work that's been published has been published within the last five to ten years. So really contemporary as well. We're, we're behind, you know,、yeah. we're, we're behind the curve, and more needs to be done. And, and this is why I'm just so enthusiastic about the projects that we're running and, and the colleagues are running, of course, because I think officials need that support. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right.、Um, before before we, we we start heading towards the end, I wanted to ask about.、Um, In terms of, of 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 psychology, in terms of of the the temperament of different officials, you know,、uh, one of the things that I face is that I'm highly sensitive, and you know, a lot of my friends will will you know throw some good natured ribbing at me, saying you know, man, you know, someone who's highly sensitive, I don't know if they should be a a, a baseball official. I'm like, oh, I'm well aware, you know, I I definitely. <laughs> Uh, I definitely have to think about that one.、Um, but there's, there is, you know, there, there is now this 
you know, this this growing movement from um, Dr. Elaine Aaron in in California called uh, for the highly sensitive person, people who have sensory processing sensitivity. And, you know, I, I found out, you know, it's one of those things where I found out about it during the pandemic. And, you know, you go back over your life, and you're like, oh, my God, everything now points to this. And now I, I feel like I've unlocked something in myself. Does someone with such sensitivity still have the ability to be a good official, knowing that we have these hurdles in front of us, you know, I, because a, we do need the bodies. We need people B. I think the people who are so sensitive or so empathetic could be some of the best officials we have because of their knowledge of, of the game and the rules and whatnot. And yet we, we, we have the culture where they could be easily deterred, um, easily criticized and, and, and force them away from the game. Uh, what? Where do we reconcile that? I mean, is it as simple as just saying we need to give them more support, or is there something beyond that? As you were talking there, the first thing I wrote down is really needed, great mm -hmm. qualities, empathy, communication. Uh, the colleague that I mentioned earlier on, Ian Cunningham, is like an expert in this field of officials and referee communication and how we frame and mm -hmm. stage manage, so to speak, what we do. Uh, and we know the people that are very good at expressing empathy and can communicate clearly make very good officials. But underlined here three times, need support. Yeah. So those are the individuals that it's, okay, you, you, we need to protect those qualities that you have. Human beings bring lots of things to the table and there's no such thing as a good quality or a bad quality. They're, they're just qualities. And in some situations, it makes you a winner. And in some situations, it probably works to your detriment. Regarding like what it takes to be official, a couple of really interesting points here. The first one is I, I interviewed a guy for the book and I said, the first question I asked him was like, oh, is, is it really stressful? You know, this is when I was really inexperienced and didn't know much about it, of course, because I would never ask this question now. It's such a right, closed yeah. question, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I said, oh, is it really stressful being a football referee? And he went, no, it's the other way around. He said, like, when I, when I officiate a game, I have to be so focused on what's going on right now. I don't have time to worry about all the other stresses, like my job, you know, paying the bills, uh, you know, my kids having a tough time with their homework or something like this. He's mm -hmm. like, I don't have to worry about that. Like for 90 minutes, I get to focus on something and be very mindful. Yeah. And I actually see it as a stress relief. It's physical as well. So that was kind of a, a bit of an eye opener. So maybe like, you know, this, this is something that we don't think about sports officials it actually could be a nice stress relief for yeah. some people. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, and again, this is going to bring it back to my research. So one of the kind of fundamental concepts of REBT is that when we talk about like negative emotions, it, we, we tend to think of negative emotions as just that they're bad. Like we right. shouldn't have them. We want to avoid them. Whereas actually like those negative emotions are there for a reason and they can promote really adaptive behaviors. So what we mean by that is, for instance, if we experience kind of like nerves for some things, I'm sure before you've officiated a game, you, you felt an element of nervousness. Oh, every time. Okay. So that might be a good thing, dependent on the emotional and behavioral outcomes that you are experiencing. So do those nerves make you more focused? Do they make, do they prompt you to strategize about what you can do to have a good game? Because you clearly care, you wouldn't be nervous. Right. So it might do that. Now, if it's the other way where you go into avoidance and you're like, okay, I'm really nervous. I'm not going to make a call today. I don't want people booing me. So oh, I'm going to look over there and I'm going to ignore this. That's going to kind of harm you. So we yeah. call that an unhealthy negative emotion. Whereas the other way of, okay, what can I do to, you know, prior to the match, what can I do to be like better here? 
Um, am I going to follow my right procedures? Am I going to kind of, um, am I, where am I going to focus? What cues am I going to look out for today to help me make my decisions? We'd call that a negative, healthy emotion. So I think that sometimes this is where psychology can really benefit officials of rather than kind of experiencing these things and, and assuming, well, this is a very negative thing. It can be framed completely differently. It's, this is fine that you're feeling that. But just make sure that that feeling promotes behaviors that are going to help you meet your goal. Yeah. Your goal as an official is to, you know, get as many decisions right as possible and to and enable a safe and enjoyable game for everyone. So what do you need to do to do that? And if and if feeling a little bit nervous kind of prompts that, great. And if it doesn't, this is, you know, this particular psychological approach or therapeutic approach can help promote that. Mm-hmm. That's it's so great that you say that. Uh, a friend of mine who is a, a Major League Baseball official, Chris Conroy, who I we've had on the show before and i hope to grab him again on the show um he he said this once and i'll never forget it he said it's okay to have butterflies in your stomach the trick is to get them to fly in formation yeah and and it's it's i i i my jaw dropped and i said okay sir here's a blank check with my signature on it you just write in the amount that you think is fair for that genius you know, I, I absolutely um, love it. Can you can you tell me the name of that umpire again? Yeah, Chris Conroy, C O N R O Y. Thank you very much. He's uh, he's such an he's such a funny guy. I, I met him. I only met him last year, and yet he, you know, he's one of these. All and most of these umpires are this way. They are down to earth, funny guys who care more about charity, doing the right thing. Their ego is is so far in the rear view mirror and yet because of the way that society portrays them they think you know they they are portrayed to have the ego and yet it couldn't be farther from the truth it is this is this is something that i say to everyone all the time they, they say well, when I'm, obviously i'm never going to reveal the people that i speak to right. you know for, for you know eth- ethical reasons but uh, you know, I, I've been really fortunate to interview thousands of referees from all levels of, of mm-hmm. the game, particularly in soccer, but occasionally other sports as well. And the one thing I always have to say to people is the sense of humor they have is incredible. Yes. And how, you know, they just accept that. Like, you know, I've never met one that says, I never make a mistake. Yeah. In fact, they will say the opposite. Like, Every game I make a mistake, but it's always from a good place. It's always like a genuine error. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I saw something wrong or I didn't have the best view or I, j- I just made an error on this particular occasion and the, the one thing that really frustrates me is when people say like oh they don't have any ownership or yeah. they don't have any accountability it's like it's complete opposite yeah like i've spoken to the official like one guy said to me and this is like, again like top top level officials so not someone kind of struggling at the bottom so if i make a bad call and i know i made a bad call i don't sleep for a week yeah same here like it bothers me that much mm-hmm. um but I, I want to do well like i want to get better but i'm a human being and human beings like make mistakes you know it's you play a bum note when you play your saxophone. Oh, God. Or, or, yeah, you know, it's, it happens. Yeah, it <laughs> totally happens, you know. Um, it's so funny because, again, I, I and I've said this to I've said this to, to coaches, too, as I as I try and, you know, counsel them in this is where I say, if I make a bad call, who do you think is the first to know that I made a bad call? It's me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instantaneously, I know I made the wrong call. And I and be, and just because of human nature i can't go back sometimes you know yeah. you just yeah. can't do it sometimes it just comes out wrong you know and yeah. and so 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 if you think you know if, if a coach thinks that i'm purposefully out there to make bad calls or anything like that it's like nope i believe me i am going to not sleep i'm going to have more gray hair and i'm going yeah. to drink profusely because of this one call you know it's going to happen 
may look at some of the coping mechanisms that people report oh my in God. one study like yeah alcohol is is on there mm -hmm. the numbing the numbing agents that we have yeah. because of that it's it's on there um before we wrap i wanted to give the floor to you Stu. is there anything else that you would like to promote you'd like to say you'd like to get out there i want the floor to be yours for whatever you need no i really appreciate that i mean you know i guess if i could ask people i'm currently doing a study where i need sports officials to complete an online survey um, the survey has 96 items in it. It takes around 15 minutes, I would say, to complete. And it can be done completely online. You know, you don't have to talk to me or talk to anyone or anything like that. Um, and I'll be more than happy to provide Jack with the link or people can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter. Stu Carrington 07 is, uh, is my uh, handle on there. Uh, people can email me, uh, stuart.carrington at stmarys.ac.uk. All these avenues are great ways of getting the link to the survey jack would be really appreciative if you could promote it as well Absolutely. and just any qualified official any sport any level the bigger the sample the better and and i'm really pleased because the first round of data collection you know i had about 500 officials from all around the world you know usa canada europe australia etc etc um, if i can replicate that with this second round it'll just really kind of strengthen the, the the quality of this study and and i'd be thrilled to share the findings with your listeners oh that would be great and i've i've taken the survey and it's i think it's a very very important survey um you know i actually as i was taking it i found myself asking myself a lot of deep questions too because i know that you know as it says in the survey you know things are purposefully worded particular ways and in just taking the survey i found it to be therapeutic because it forced me to take a step back and say, you know, maybe I'm making this sometimes making this worse than it actually is in my experience. And that's not to say that I have bad experiences. There are terrible things. You hear terrible things. There is abuse. There is there's stuff like that that we have to change. But we also have that ability to, you know, make it more dramatic or to uh, catastrophize it in, in ways that you know, it, 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 it forces us to say, okay, maybe it's not as bad as I think. And that's a benefit to me, I think, to say, I can look internally and see what kind of work I can do to become stronger or more resilient or whatever the case may be. That's exactly right. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the aim of the survey is to generate a, a very bespoke and unique, because it'd be the first one of its kind, mm. like psychological measure for sports officials to ascertain kind of areas for psychological development and the things you I mean you used the word catastrophizing that's yeah. like that's like that's like a key term in yeah. rebt and um it's just so refreshing to hear an official like yourself say yeah the, the terms used in this survey kind of resonate with me yeah um, because because they're that's the whole point yeah we went through so much social validation with sports officials to say are these the terms we should be using and we you know we've we've slimmed it down from you know nearly 160 items to 22 items on one scale and then there's other kind of things in there that total the 96 so in, we're going to have like maybe like a 20 item kind of scale that we'll boil it down to that's fantastic um how much do i owe you for this therapy session because this has been so much fun <laughs> i don't know if my health insurance covers international therapy but jack the pleasures of mine it's just such it's, it's so refreshing and, and such a pleasurable experience for me to talk to people with such enthusiasm for officiating well we i i equally share in that pleasure you are welcome here anytime and if i or osip can do anything for you for your study for for whomever 
Uh, please do not hesitate to reach out. You know, we're only a plane ride away if we need to. And uh, I had yet to be to Europe anywhere. So, and I know my girlfriend loves going over there. So if I tell her, hey, guess what? We're going and you're going to pay, not you, her. Yeah. You know, she, she'll be like, let's go. Let's just go. So, um, more, than, so more than welcome to. I'll, sh I'll show you around London. Um, I would look, I would so look forward to it. And uh, if we do see Daniel Craig out there, just protect me because I will, I will slap him. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not sure what you, I, I could do against Daniel Craig. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> He is he is a very very fit man. Let's put it that way. Yes. <laughs> um, Stu, again, thank you. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the results of the study. We'll surely promote the survey, and um, we we'll hope to talk to you again soon on the show. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Jack. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you to everybody who is who has listened. Again, you can check us out online at osafoundation.org. Contact the show with podcast at osafoundation.org. Uh, Facebook.com slash OSA Foundation, Twitter and Instagram at OSA Foundation, hashtag how you play the game. We will talk to everybody in the new year. And until then, please, please, please treat each other with respect. How You Play the Game is a production of the OSA Foundation Incorporated. The producer engineer of this episode is Sean Ryan. Music by SoundSpring Studio. The executive producer of How You Play the Game is Jack Furlong. For more information, visit osafoundation.org.